if you'll please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. Uh, James chapter 5, we're going to be reading from verses 7 to 11. And if you're using the, uh, the church Bibles, you'll find that on page uh, 1013, 1013. And uh, before we begin our reading, I want to give a quick note of, quick note of context here, um, since we're coming in at the second half of this chapter. Um, in sum, th th this is a congregation that's experienced much hardship, many trials, and James has been prayerfully, uh, pastorally, pardon me, uh, encouraging them, strengthening them, and as well as admonishing them uh, and correcting uh, various character matters. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, though, he had turned to a group that had been uh, oppressing the Christian community who were poor. They were uh, day laborers. They're hired and given their, day, uh, their, their, their wages at the end of the day. And their employers uh, were not paying them or they were delaying in payment. The poor Christians tried to take them to court. It didn't seem to work well. And so, uh, in fact, they ended up in a harder, uh, in a harder issue. And so James condemned those who were rich for defrauding the poor and loving their money. So that is the background here. We begin our, we begin our scripture reading, giving attention to the word of the Lord from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. I draw your attention in particular to verse 8, if you'll, if you'll look there with me. And this will be our sermon text in this morning as we consider this passage. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now let us pray for the Lord's blessing. Our Father, uh, who is in heaven and who does hear us for the sake and out of the love of our mediator, Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask that by that Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Lord, that you would, you would give us in this time uh, many rich blessings, Lord, and it's a deposit of, of faith in, in uh, these doctrines of life in your word. Father, we know that uh, in our in our fallen flesh which we still contend with even now being in Christ that Lord oftentimes our minds wander uh, we, we, we get caught up thinking about other things of our day or of our lives Lord we ask that uh, by your grace you would give us the ears to hear Lord even give our hearts those ears to hear Lord, give us uh, an understanding or to have this, this sure knowledge of you because of your son, Jesus Christ, who, uh, who so revealed your word perfectly. And Lord, who continues even now to teach us by his very spirit. 
We ask, O Lord, that all glory would be given to you and unto your Son through that Holy Spirit, Lord, world without end. Hear us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you be patient. Be patient. There's fewer words, I think, uh, fewer phrases that are, that are just loaded with such immense wisdom. And at the same time, there, there, there's, I think, fewer other phrases that just get so under our skin. We know we need patience, all of us, but we don't like to exercise it. I mean, a, a child uh, throws a tantrum or isn't listening. You must be patient with them. Mom and dad are taking forever to stop talking at church and, uh, you know, and to go and leave and get home. Be patient. The car in front of you is going five below the speed limit. You're almost late for an appointment. Be patient. An employee or coworker forgot to do something. Now it's on you to do it. Be patient. It's hard enough to be patient with these little day-to-day things. The normal, ordinary things of life, if you will. But how much harder is it when, when we need to be patient with spiritual things? Especially when we look around at this, this world and the society around us. There's wickedness. Perversions, immoralities of all sorts. Even in our own hearts, there's that wickedness. How much, how much longer until this, all, this injustice and, and, and sin is purged, is just done with, is gone? How much until things in this country will be set right so we can get back to old, you know, those good old days? You know, we want a president to, to put an end to all this, this woke stuff we hear about, to, to take action against corruption of the youth in our in our schools we want criminals to pay with sentences that fit the offense in the court system to do things right and do it quickly we want someone to stand up for our persecuted christian brothers and sisters in hostile countries well when it comes to evil in the worlds be patient's one of the last things that we want to hear and waiting for justice to come can be agonizing when there's so much hardship and sorrow in this world. And as we said, uh, as we said about our context a moment b- before our reading, James declared judgment upon the evil rich who hoarded their wealth, who would use their money to indulge in their passions, and who robbed the poor believers that James was writing to. And so James told, uh, told them in 5.1, Weep and howl for your souls. The oppressed are crying out to the Lord, their helper. James speaks as a, a very much like an Old Testament prophet in several places, such as there throughout this letter. But in the, with the end of, of, of this, that first section, verses 1 to 6, James puts down the prophetic role, the prophetic voice. And he, as he has done throughout this book, takes up that tone of pastor again. So he speaks in a now... Directing, uh, directed back to the Christian community to tell them, be patient, even in the midst of hardship, oppression. Be patient. Judgment upon the wicked is coming, brothers. It is coming, sisters. But in God's time. And that time, it, it, it might be later than we hope for, but it is coming. It is near. The theme of our text in this morning is our, our very uh, sermon title. 
patience. Endure in patience. There are three reasons for this. Endure in patience because we wait for the Lord's coming. Endure in patience because we will all be judged. And endure in patience because we shall be blessed. So we'll look at that here in this morning, this, this first point. Endure in patience for we wait for the Lord's coming. Um, I like to say often that when you're reading scripture, of course when scripture says anything at all, it's important. It's there for a reason. It is the word of God. When scripture, in the, sh- in the span of a short passage like this, when the scripture says something two or three times repeating a word in a row, the Lord really wants us to pay attention. But here, just a couple of verses, the Spirit uses the word patience four times. And perseverance twice. And I mean, that, that, that's what I would call an underline moment if I've ever seen one. Patience. That is the key. And since patience is so important, uh, we, we first want to understand how James is using it here. We can generally define the, the uh, concept of patience that, that he's speaking of as a moral self-restraint from taking revenge on immorality, from taking revenge against immoral things. Perhaps another way we could think of it is uh, in the sense of being slow to anger. Think about God's dealings with man. God has this self-restraint against man's continual sins, despite repeated admonitions. Uh, This morning in the Sunday school, the adult Sunday school, we had heard of how the Lord was repeatedly showing grace and patience with Israel, even as they continued to sin in the wilderness. Generation upon generation. Patience that James speaks of here is truly a divine virtue. Patience is something God has. It's an attribute of God that man is to reflect. So why, why exactly is this the command, though, that James tells the Christian? And this is where that, that situation of verses 1 to 6 comes in. See, these, these Christians that he was writing to, they couldn't defend themselves when they were defrauded by their rich employers. Those rich employers, they used their wealth and power to bribe the courts. And they, mo- they made the poor Christians out to be the guilty party. Now, when the state and legal system are perceived to fail, what happens? When the court fails you, oftentimes people are, are, are tempted to take matters into their own hands. Uh, James gives the command to be patient here so that his readers do not seek vigilante justice for themselves. That's what's going on. The Lord says in Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So these Christians were wronged, but they shouldn't try to correct that wrong themselves. We, we see then that, that patience that James is speaking of, this patience has a passive character in waiting upon the Lord to take action. It should be said, though, here that there are times in which it's permissible to take a stand. I mean, if someone breaks into your, into your home, for example, we ought to defend ourselves. Or in the face of a tyrannical government, there are times where we might follow uh, local politicians or, or whatnot in defending our liberties, such as what happened with the Revolutionary War. But what James is saying is a distinction here. We're not to seek our own brand of justice out of revenge because we were wrong. 
Perhaps we could do a more recent example. Now, regardless of where you fell on the matter, we could think of uh, the riots that followed uh, George Floyd's death as an example of reacting in false justice, that is, reacting in vengeance. Something happened that was perceived to be wrong. No one was doing anything about it, so they took action themselves and went to the streets. Now, if there truly is wrong in any occasion, any matter, any event, what James wants us to see is that we are to trust that God will not only deliver his people, but he shall come again as the judge. And until then, when the judge comes to bring that judgment, the Christian must wait and trust the Lord will establish justice once and for all. Now, James gives an agrarian illustration in the second part of uh, verse 7 to drive this point home. Um, why must we wait as Christians? He says from verse 7, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Uh, one commentator would point out now, uh, I, I don't know too much about farming, um, but I think I know this principle. If a, if a farmer begins harvesting the moment that he sees fruit start to grow, if he takes them off the moment they're just starting to grow, well, I mean, what, what would the point of that be? Would he really profit from that? No, he would lose everything if he tried to harvest his entire crop the moment it starts to bud. If a farmer is to anticipate a bountiful harvest, the farm, uh, farmer must wait until the crop is ripened. And for that, he must know when the rainy seasons are. Now in Israel, the early rain, which James refers to, speaking of early and later rains, the early rain is in autumn. In autumn, that's when the, the, that's when the rain will first loosen the soil so that the seeds can be planted and, and could, could take root and germinate. But then the farmer also has to hope for a good amount of rainfall in the spring as well so that his, rops, his crops could ripen and increase. A farmer has learned through, through uh, general principles, experience, common sense, education, to, to predict the ex extent of how much he's going to get from a crop, how, may, how much he may expect in a single crop. But the farmer also cannot be absolutely certain about the complete harvest that's going to come in. The farmer, in other words, in waiting for that first rain and the second rain, the farmer must wait in hope. And so you also, dear friends, be patient, says James. Just like the farmer waits upon rain for his harvest, the believer waits in anticipation of the Lord's coming. And he tells his readers to, to establish, or, or more literally, strengthen your hearts in the meantime. This, this word, for establish your hearts, this expands on the, on the command for, for patience. Uh, it's another aspect of patience. That word, establish your hearts, strengthen your hearts, it's also used in Luke 9, 51, to describe Jesus' fixed determination as he set his face, there's that word, as he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his heart in determination, fixed focus, to go and do the will of the Lord and what he was called to do. 
James is in verse 8 then saying, there's a nuance here from just waiting upon the Lord in patience. Strengthen your heart that you, Christian, would be resolved. Have your face set towards the Lord's coming, enduring in patience. Resolving, if you will, by that spirit in you, upon Upon Christ's promise to return. The farmer sets himself to wait without, without losing hope or you know, without, without being overly presumptuous of what crops he'll get. Jesus set his face to, to carry out his work on the cross without straying from the Father's will. The believer establishes his heart on the solid rock of the word of God without doubt or distraction. In all these things, no one knows the hour of his coming, but he shall come. Like a thief in the night. And he will bring judgment then. So dear congregation. The first thing we must consider in this. Is that all of us. All men must stand awake. And be ready. And for us Christians in these. In hardships and trials. And waiting for justice to come. Upon the wicked. Be patient and do not lose heart. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Endure in patience. Because at that time, we will all be judged. And this is our second point. In verse 9, Pastor James shows that taking vengeance against oppressors isn't the only reason he tells the Christians to wait on the Lord. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now maybe, you're, maybe you're under extreme pressure at work, or maybe you're really stressed because there's a lot of sudden life changes going on. Maybe you have to make some difficult decisions with finances or about your health. Something even as simple as, as a lack of sleep all the way to you're being constantly oppressed. Trials easily bring discontentment about our situations. This is groaning inwardly, inward grumbling. When we groan Inwardly, though, it doesn't really stay there, our inward complaints. We soon start to grumble outwardly and lose patience. And as, as the saying goes, uh, misery loves company. When we feel that there's so little that we can do to set our situations right, oftentimes we, we take it out on those around us. The poor Christians that James is writing to, they were defrauded. They were fined in court. They were slandered. The rich who had robbed them, they were, they were untouchable. You know, they were in a higher place in society. They had power. So they, you can't do anything against those guys. Well, then the Christians spoke evil against one another, as James had put it in, in, in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. So in times of trial, dear friends, we, we have to watch ourselves closely. As you see, an, an unguarded heart yields an unguarded tongue. When we're sinned against, we're tempted to then ourselves sin in two ways. First, when we don't guard our hearts when we're sinned against, we break the commandment to love God. In James uh, 1 verse 2, James says, Count it all a joy when you meet various trials, because God uses those trials in his wisdom, to strengthen our faith, even when we don't understand it. 
But when we, when we groan inward, inwardly, our hearts slander the Lord, so to speak, accusing him as if his providence is not perfectly wise, not just, not good, as though it were not for my benefit. We find, uh, grumbling in the heart is that we find fault with God instead of trusting in him. But second, a second sin here, when we don't guard our tongues in trials, then we break the commandment to love our neighbors. We take our frustrations out on one another, as I said a moment ago. When we, when we take our frustrations out on one another, we're acting as if that person is to blame for, for my hardships. By doing that, by saying that, well, you're, you're, you're a cause for this situation, that, that's, that's judging unjustly. Uh, James says again there in 4.11, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. That's a tough place to be in. When you speak against your brother, saying that they are at fault for your situations, and you lash out and in, in knee-jerk reaction of things going on in life. It's casting judgment. And when we play judge, that's, that's a difficult, that, that, that's a scary thing to consider. Christ alone is judge. And it's Christ alone who has authority to save or destroy. And here's what we have to keep in mind then. Death can come to any one of us at any moment, beloved. It doesn't respect our age. It doesn't respect our, our, our background, uh, our economic class, none of that. At some point, the door will fling open, and we're going to be face-to-face with the judge. And what will happen to the one who groans against God for his providence? What will happen to the one who grumbles in judgment against their neighbor? Now, to be sure, Christians will not come under the wrath of God on the last day. But the elect and reprobate alike, everyone, everyone, will be called to give an account for our sins. We shall be judged for every idle word we have spoken. I mean, it's a stern warning here. For those who do not repent and seek to put to death a grumbling heart. We, everything that we do still has to be put out before the Lord. But at the same time, there's a comfort in verse 9. There's a comfort in this. Who's the judge? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ to whom you were, you know, those, those sins are laid out in front of. Jesus Christ who took on those sins for you. And paid for them. It is Christ who stands at the door. Ready to enter. Now for the believer who is assured. That he is pardoned and made righteous by Christ's merits. Hearing that the judge is so close. And about to burst through that door. That should excite us. Of course that's not. That's not often the case. Sometimes we can be scared of that. But, but think of it this way, uh, kids, especially you here, and thinking of this idea of Christ is about to come. 
you know what it's like for, uh, for someone that you really love, maybe a grandma, a grandpa, or a friend. You're waiting for them to come to your house, and when they do finally show up to your home, they, they park their car on the driveway, they're walking up to the door, how do you feel? I just had friends come and visit from, uh, from several hundred miles away after not seeing them for four months. Uh, they visited, and I remember the moment I could see them walking up that path. I was so excited. These are dear friends. How much more when it's our Lord? Our Lord is already parked and walking up to the door. But how indifferent we are to this fact oftentimes. I mean, we, we think he's been walking up the path to our entryway for 2,000 years. Is he serious about coming? How much longer is he going to take? Well, we can be impatient in that way. In pa- we have an, an impatience with God at times, and we could sound just like the Hebrews on their way to the promised land. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We remember that the Lord never let that first generation enter into the promised land because of their grumbling hearts and doubting God's providence. Did he or did he not say he would bring them into that land? He promised it. Did he or did he not say he will come back for us and that it is coming soon? Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us, let us always put our impatience in check, especially in, in this matter of waiting upon the Lord. The Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 has not lied to us when he said that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In earthly time, that could be in 10 minutes that he's coming back. It could be in 10,000 years. But according to the Spirit who speaks through James, Christ is already at the door. So the question isn't, how long, oh Lord, how long until you come through that door? We want to consider, are we ready? Are we ready to see him face to face finally, when faith becomes sight? In the meantime, now is also the time to examine our behavior, check our grumbling hearts, and get our house in order. Let us not be found grumbling when he has arrived, but endure in patience, trusting in the Lord. For in this way, we shall be blessed. And here here now is our third point, third and final point. In these last few verses verses 10 to 11, we find that James doesn't just leave his readers with an abstract command to just be patient and wait. No, he goes to the pages of Scripture for some solid application here. His audience, we remember, uh, are are Christians. He's writing to Christians, and in fact, they're Jewish Christians. Uh, So they're very familiar with the Old Testament prophets. So he's appealing to what they know very well. He points to the lives of the Old Testament prophets as examples, if you will, of, of, of godly people whose righteous conduct is to be imitated. We could maybe think of, of Elijah, who Ahab and Jezebel sought to put to death for calling out their idol worship. There's Jeremiah who called the nation to repent. We know that he would be thrown into a pit to die as the people were taken captive. Daniel. Daniel was thrown into a pit to, uh, uh, pardon me, into a lion's den. Uh, because his political rivals despised his righteous devotion to God. 
And the same spirit that dwelled in the prophets dwells in us, beloved. What does that tell us also for this time when there's such open hostility in opposition to Christianity? We must be able to stand and say that we must obey God rather than man, as our, as our Belgian Confession will say, uh, obey God rather than man, ready to offer our backs to the stripes, our tongues to knives, our mouths to gags, our bodies to fire, rather than to ever deny the word of God. In this day of, of idolatry, so much injustice, that open hostility against our faith, now we are not to seek vengeance for any wrong done to us, but we are to patiently wait for the Lord. And yet, as we wait, we have a charge from Christ himself. Under the Great Commission, we must continue to proclaim truth without fear as witnesses to the world. Endure and patience includes proclamation and witness. And think of it in this day, or th think of it in this way. What is the point of the URC? What is our place? Why are we formed? Well, we hold to, in unity, a profession of what Scripture teaches, and as represented and a faithful summary in our confessions. We stand united in the profession of these things for this world, for however long we're here. Never to let go of that, no matter what opposition comes to us. And opposition did come from those CRC ministers who wanted to take a stand against false doctrines. They suffered for the gospel's sake. And the URC was formed. And let us continue to hold and stand fast upon that word, even if it means suffering for the gospel's sake. Even if it means being hated by the society around you because you believe something so different, so holy, so right, so righteous. Insult and persecution is a worthy price for such a worthy savior. Just look at the martyrs in China, the, the Middle East, or Africa. I think we can say that as, as God lives, the spirit of the prophets is alive in those lands as well. They continue to suffer for his namesake. Well, let us also hear the call to lose our life for Christ, whether it be figuratively or literally someday. And indeed, James says in, in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And these words, he's paraphrasing Jesus in Matthew 5.11 uh, to verse 12 in the Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they shall also persecute you. And James is also referencing back to a statement he made in, in chapter 1 verse 12. And there he had said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. James is giving us an idea from, from this context of drawing from, from Jesus' words in the Beatitude and from his earlier remark in chapter 1 to give us a concept of what he means by steadfastness here. 
steadfastness in relation to patience. A moment ago in our first point, we, we, we had said that uh, patience has something of a passive endurance, a waiting upon the Lord. But being steadfast, or literally another word we'll use, persevering. This is an active faith that triumphs amidst affliction. It's, it's a faith that undergoes hardship, trial, in whatever form, and yet comes out in the end, having stood the test. Now here, we're also given an example from verse 11. He tells us, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And really, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing that, he's, that James says here, because if you're familiar with, with Job and some of the ways he speaks, he doesn't seem very patient at times. He tries to argue with God. He, uh, in, in chapter 3, 1, he curses the day of his, of his birth, the moment he underwent trial. 16.3, he, he tires of what he calls his friends uh, long-winded speeches. He says, just stop talking. Yeah, I don't want to hear this stuff right now. He, do, he doesn't seem to have much patience. But, so why Job? Why is Job being brought up here? Well, he, he's not commended necessarily for patience, but here, James says, it's for his faith in the end that triumphed. It's for his steadfastness, having withstood the trial and come out at the end of it, still trusting the Lord. And that's the key. Throughout that whole book, that whole occasion, Job did not cease trusting in the Lord. And he recognized it is the Lord who gives and takes away and appoints trials and relieves us from the intensity of those trials. Now for us, at times, it, it might seem that God is unconcerned with, ag with our agonies or with oppressions or the things that we're going through in our day-to-day -day lives. But James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And here, James is again alluding to Scripture, paraphrasing Exodus 34, 6, when the Lord passes by in front of Moses to reveal himself. The Lord says that he is compassionate. This word, though, uh, that James is using here, he's going further than just paraphrasing Scripture. He actually coins a word that you're not going to find anywhere else in, in, in the Greek Scriptures. The Greek word that he uses for compassionate, it's, it's literally uh, much bowled. And in that, uh, the guts. In that culture, the, the bowels or the guts were the center or the nucleus, so to speak, of all feelings and affections. They were the engine and core of man. It's an idiom, kind of like how we would say, well, I felt this in my heart, to say, well, I felt it in the depth of my being. Well, James is saying here, the Lord's tender, loving care for his people goes to the very depths of his being and beloved how how deep is the lord's being it's infinite the lord's tender loving care for his people goes to the depths of his infinite being now think about that in light of your hardships and trials he sees that he sees your struggles he sees your sorrows he sees your pain, every injustice done against you and every one of his people. The Lord is filled with boundless compassion, and he will extend it in mercy for you to receive. And there's proof, says James. 
There's proof. He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, all suffering follows, uh, whether it's Job's suffering, your suffering, my suffering, all suffering follows in the way of Christ, the suffering servant. Think of it. Uh, Christ is the divine virtue of patience, waiting upon the Lord, acting only by the Lord's will, himself even being stricken, smitten, and afflicted, learning obedience, sharing in our very nature, that we would have a sympathetic high priest. Christ himself is the full depths of God's compassion for his people. The infinite, boundless, tender, compassionate mercy revealed for us the proof of that love. It's to him whom the, the prophets in Job looked for towards in faithful perseverance. The only reason that the prophets and Job could be great examples for steadfastness and endurance is because even through the shadows of the Old Testament, they were looking forwards in Christ, that there is a Savior. And now by the revelation of the gospel on the cross, we are to endure in patience, looking towards his coming in eagerness, even as we suffer all day long. So dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, he stands at the door knocking. He said he is coming soon. Already we hear, though, his voice assuring us of our pardon on the day of judgment and that he will reconcile all things to himself, take vengeance for his own name upon the wicked, will vindicate all of his promises that he has wrought for us. And in his mercy, we are going to be brought to complete blessing. On that day, no more tears, no more sorrow, but glory. It's for this reason we read that have patience. We can say, yes, Lord, for the day is soon. We shall stand and endure by the grace of our Lord. And we can pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, truly what a, what a wondrous thing it is that, that even though you're so far above and transcendent, Lord, so beyond anything in this in this creation, nothing is like you. Nonetheless, that you come near, closer than a friend, even dwelling in us by your Holy Spirit, that we would have this assurance that even in the hardest of all occasions for, for, for all of us here, whatever that is, to whatever extent you call us to, to suffer for your namesake, whatever test we are under, Lord, that you give us that ability to come out on the other end of that period of trial Lord, in, in, in trust and in faith. Lord, you sustain us in that faith. You grow us in that faith. And even when we hear of something that is, yes, such a terrifying, terrifying day, Lord, the judgment of your full wrath against the wicked, knowing that we ourselves sin, Father, 
we nonetheless eagerly anticipate and hope that day. For we know and trust that we are vindicated in the blood of Jesus Christ who has washed us clean. Father, impress these things upon our minds, our hearts, and uh, Lord, prepare us in going out in this, in this afternoon that we might return to your home uh, in this house of worship, Lord, in safety, should it be your will, to praise you and hear of your word and the exhortation once more. Here is we ask, O oh Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen.